0: Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Laboratory medicine has received a lot of attention over the past year. And while that attention has mostly been good, it might also be a good time to reevaluate what we are doing and make sure we'll have the resources we'll need going forward. My guest today is Jeremy Schubert. Jeremy is a healthcare strategist. And today on the show, we're going to talk about how he got into lab medicine, his career at Abbott Labs, which took him around the world, and the new tool that he's developed to help labs assess themselves called the Lab Relevance Compass. All right, here's Jeremy Schubert. Jeremy, so you initially studied international marketing. And I'm curious what got you interested in, or what would you what were you interested in about this field?
1: Well, you know, you know, I've always just been intrigued with, with people and, and specifically what I've come to call the human condition equation. And and what that means is, you know, all of us as humans are kind of driven by this this same process where we use the evidence that we have in our lives and that evidence somehow shapes what we believe. And those beliefs actually shape the decision-making and behaviors that we take, uh, which in the end of the day, kind of shapes the the outcomes of what we get. And and that's why I call it the human condition because although I didn't come up with all of these concepts, When you kind of put them together in that package, it answers a lot for how things get done and for why people do what they do. And and all of that was always interesting to me. And although we always know that there's other environmental elements that may shape what we do as people, how we make decisions, you know, what our decisions or opportunities might be, this human condition equation really kind of governs the locus of control that we have uh, as we go throughout our days and our lives. And you know, for me, marketing zeroed in on this equation from a business standpoint. Uh, it really helped highlight and study and unpack you know, how evidence is shaped, how people interpret it, how that ends up converting itself into beliefs and decisions and behaviors and outcomes associated with it. And so that was always really interesting to me. And the international tag that it put on it is you know, I grew up actually in a map dot. In Texas, you know, one square mile town surrounded by basically nothing. And that was in the 70s and 80s where you didn't have a, you could get on TikTok and see what somebody was doing in China. So what I knew about right. the world was kind of within that that one geography. And what I realized early on as I was as I was studying from a marketing perspective, that this human condition, although it holds culture to culture, country to country, uh, what might be shaping it can be completely different. And for me, I found that just very fascinating that how one culture, one country could interpret uh, evidence one way when you could see that exact same evidence being interpreted a different way in another culture, another country. And so that's kind of what brought me to this international marketing arena.
0: Okay, that makes sense. So you're saying that this human condition that you're talking about, it's the same no matter what part of the world you're in. It's just sort of interpreted differently.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's, it's the same process that, that everyone kind of goes through, uh, just how that evidence is shaped, how that evidence is interpreted into beliefs. You know, that's where culture kind of comes into play and environmental factors come into play.
0: Okay, got it, got it. All right, then you went on to earn an MBA with an emphasis on strategy, marketing, and healthcare economics. So I want to talk about specifically about the healthcare economics and what was it that, like, what did you want to do in this area? Yeah,
1: yeah. So let's let's go back to the human decision equation of this evidence beliefs okay. driving behaviors decisions and outcomes. You know, for me, economics is actually all about this equation as well. And, and effectively, what the science of economics kind of seeks to explain is how rational people, the, how the how that rationalness uh, explains the why behind what we do. Uh, but it also, you know, when you when you study from an economics perspective, it also helps you understand what drives irrational behavior, you know, from people. Again, back to you know what, what things shape, what evidence are they using to shape their beliefs, and, and how could that lead them to some irrational behaviors and some irrational decisions downstream? Now, at the time when I went back to get my MBA and put this, this kind of focus in healthcare economics, I was already in the healthcare field. And, and like so many of your listeners, all I ever heard uh, about the U.S. healthcare system was just just negative things. Uh, you know, it's a healthcare system of poor performance. There's not value for money, and I was intrigued by the fact that I knew some of the smartest people in the world were actually a part of of trying to manage and work and, and deliver value through the system. So it, it never made sense to me. There was so much intellect. And uh, good-intentioned individuals that uh, it could be so it could be so bad, and I wanted to be part of the solution, frankly. So, if you want to be part of the solution, you have to fully understand the problem. And what getting into you know health economics enabled me to do was to actually have the opportunity to take a much broader look beyond all of these sexy negative sound bites to what. The real drivers were kind of in the, in the, in the healthcare system, not just in the US, but beyond and kind of why those drivers existed in, the, in a world where you have very smart people trying to do very rational things. You know, w- what happened to drive that? And I got a really good appreciation for really the, the core challenges of how healthcare systems are shaped and, and, and maybe need to be reshaped and what gets in their way. And you know, for anyone of your listeners that are out there that you know may squint at that a bit, you know, there it, there are some real there are real challenges for people to make changes in healthcare systems. Not because there aren't you know good opportunities for correcting one thing or another, but the fact of the matter is that there's always trade offs as you're kind of going through and trying to make these changes. Yeah, as the great economist Thomas Sowell said. That they're, they're just not solutions. They're only trade-offs. And, and so when you get a health economic lens to this, you can see what trade-offs you have to make. And sometimes making those trade-offs is really a difficult game.
0: Yeah, I can, I can understand that. In your studies of healthcare economics, are you, and, and you said you were already working in the medical field, are you like approaching uh, people in medicine and talking about these issues with them?
1: Yeah, so we started to use a, a lot of the principles because, again, you know, looking at what it helped helped me from that perspective because I was already in the diagnostic field at the time was looking through what is it, what, how are people behaving, what decisions are getting made, not just within lab medicine, uh, but by policymakers, by leaders of healthcare systems, by leaders of payers, okay. and then trying to work my way back into okay, what what would be the rational way for them to behave. One, well, what's driving that their perception of of rationality, so to speak. So, it, what it what it served as kind of an underlaying of thinking, almost a culture of thought for how to look at uh, how the market was behaving, how the stakeholders were behaving, and what value was being created or not.
0: Were people receptive to what you had to say? I mean, like you said earlier, it's it's real easy to come up with negative sound bites about how the U.S. healthcare system is essentially broken. But it's a lot harder to have a solution, and then for someone to who who has the power to implement that solution, it's it's hard for them to to listen to what that solution is. Is that did you have that experience?
1: Yeah, I think there's kind of two things that you know I mean, I've had a, a host of positive experiences because as you talk to people, there's there's way more the vast majority of people that are involved with healthcare want to make it better than not. So uh, so there's always a receptive heart, so to speak, uh, for people who want to you know, want to think about it differently and would like to see it, see good things happen. What you see kind of, though, is kind of two undercurrents that fight against some of this change and kind of sit under this umbrella uh, of economics, one of which just happens to be kind of all the incentives that are in the this, this system. Obviously, incentives are there to try to drive appropriate behavior. But what you end up finding is in, you know, not just in healthcare, but in a lot of other business domains, you see some some unintended consequences of incentives that are there to try to drive efficiency or to drive try to drive quality. And so some of these incentives actually work against change to a degree. The second thing, which is actually a sad thing, and this features in the lab medicine perhaps that will get, get into down the road, is you know there's sometimes a sense of, well, there's not much I can do about it because a problem seems a lot bigger than what one individual department, one individual can, can influence or the genesis of the problem sits external to that the outside of what someone perceives to be the locus of control. And so those are two domains that, you know, although there's always receptivity to making things better, there could be some, some headwinds uh, okay. to actually generate momentum.
0: So the healthcare economics, this seems like this, Kind of leads to where when you went to get your a second master's degree, which was in public health. Yeah, All right. Okay, so is that is that kind of one thing led into the other? Is that how it worked?
1: Yeah, exactly. Because you know, I, I got a really good appreciation uh, with this undercurrent of, of health economics and kind of how systems were working, and interchanging with, with, with key opinion leaders and stakeholders in the market. You know, to, to see uh, you know, really how the how how they were. You know, again. Behaving making decisions and trying to create value. And if we go go back to again this kind of human condition equation, if you really want to understand how to make an impact of that in healthcare, you gotta look much much broader. You know, by this time, I could I could really appreciate, and this is really kind of the key word for me, the interconnectedness of everything within healthcare. There's healthcare systems, not one thing, it's it's a thousand things within the system that are there to drive care and they have to work in a synergistic uh, interconnected way. And so once I, you could appreciate that What you start to see is just within the healthcare system alone, you get an appreciation for where some of the root causes are because where there could be a problem where you recognize the problem, you know, the problem could be downstream, you know, uh, and, and hard to find the root cause of what's driving that. And so, you know, I got a really good appreciation for that. But then I kind of, you know, came to the realization of something that's really important that, you know, depending on who you want to believe, you know, less than 10% of our health, of our well-being is actually derived from the health system in and of itself. So much of our health and well-being, you know, uh, is, is influenced by variables outside the health system. And those variables actually have a pretty significant impact to how health systems are able to perform. And so for me, you know, getting into public health was a way to better better understand, better appreciate what those other variables were, to find those, to understand those, and to figure out what role they should play in the decision-making that healthcare systems, you know, take, uh, and perhaps what role they should play in uh, the approach that payers and policymakers should take uh, in terms of thinking about how to shape wellness and well-being for, for their populations. You know, things like the social determinants of health, things like uh, just general policy on how health is administered and paid for, and and even how the media works, how people are communicated to, how evidence is presented. Because that can have a very drastic swing, as we're already seeing with, you know, kind of Vaccine reticence. I can have a very drastic swing on the decisions that people make about their well-being and how they interface with the healthcare system. And as I was going through that, what was quite interesting to me is, you know, I I went into that that public health piece because I really wanted to find the area of health or healthcare that I felt like was going to make the biggest impact. And I went in there with this kind of full mindset that that wasn't going to be lab medicine. Uh, That that was going to be something in machine learning or AI, that was going to be some sort of, you know, kind of emerging med device kind of element. It turns out, actually, everything I learned in public health reinforced the fact that the place to be, if you wanted to affect health and healthcare, was lab medicine. That was the the best place to be and everything pointed to that as it is today. Now that's not forever right? Because there, you know, there there are opportunities for lab medicine to, to solve, to create new value. Somebody's going to solve and create those problems and create that value. And so for right now, lab medicine's in the position to do so, you know, and so this is the place to be.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, something else I, that I've heard from uh, several people that have been on this podcast is that public health, and this ties into the your original work in international marketing, public health is in international pursuit it's not just you know single countries you know as as we're seeing you know with with covid that it's yeah. it's it's international
1: yeah absolutely and and uh, every dynamic and every culture and every country kind of you know approaches it from a different perspective right you know it, mm-hmm. you know, get an interesting factoid you know, kind of thing to look at is when you look at other countries everyone would love always loves to make a case about how expensive our your US healthcare system is so if you play, you know, the spending on healthcare, we stand out, and you know, and we need to own that, and that needs to be corrected, addressed, reviewed, thought about. But if you then throw in what we spend on social funding, and you combine those two numbers, now all of a sudden the U.S. kind of moves to the you know, semi middle of the pack from an OECD perspective, you know. And so, you know, so it's again, there's just money going in different places. Now that's not an advertisement that we should cut healthcare spending and put a bunch on social programs. But it's just to take into consideration that when you kind of look at these two things together, it's not only an international problem, but there's just different there's different models and approaches people are using from social funding to healthcare uh, to try to create wellness and health in a population. And you know those are interesting dynamics. And as, as you know, pandemics occur, it, it, it makes you realize that you know one country's challenge becomes all countries' challenge.
0: You mentioned a little bit ago uh, you had already been working in. The laboratory field. So I want to kind of backtrack to that and talk about that a little bit. When when did you first become uh, inspired to to work in the lab field?
1: Actually, I I got in, in uh, into the lab field almost by accident. But I've been in lab medicine since since 1993. Okay. But as far as this inspired interest, it actually I didn't fully appreciate uh, being in lab medicine until I completed my master's in public health. And that really, like I said, you know, along that journey, just kept reinforcing that lab medicine was the place to be. Now, you know, even going back to my health economics days, uh, many of you may know of a gentleman by the name of Michael Porter, who is you know, one of the founding fathers, so to speak, of value-based care. I actually once was, was able to spend some time with Dr. Porter as we were hosting an event that he was speaking at. And you know, I got to spend a lot of days with him leading up to you know his presentation. And uh, I got a chance to actually describe all of this latent power that we saw in lab medicine, and the impact that it could have, and really you know, having open dialogue with him about the connection between all of this latent power and the lab with you know with value-based care, and and he was really intrigued by it, and, and, and he he actually shared kind of in one of the conversations he used a very interesting terminology which he, he referred to as the lab is actually in the preferred position. Because of how it can, if you go back to this human, this human condition, how it, it, it and we all know it creates data or evidence, but, you know, how it could create even more evidence that can help shape the beliefs, the understanding, the comprehension about populations, about a health system in general, about, you know, clinician selectivity, effectiveness, a host of things the lab could do. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it has, a you know, extreme opportunity to have an impact on value-based care or the value-based decisions and activities that um, clinicians, administrators, payers, even policymakers take, and so you know between kind of getting my MPH and spending some time you know with, with Dr. Porter on you know, labs, potential role in value-based care, uh, I got I got really psyched up about you know being a lab medicine and absolutely convinced that it was it was the place to be.
0: What type of roles then were you, did you have? in the lab? I mean, was it more like supervisor or managerial or were you in, in like a bench tech or what, what kind of things did you do?
1: Actually, I, I came to, I came to work, uh, right to Abbott labs, Abbott, Abbott, right yeah. out of, uh, right out of college. So I, I never worked actually within the lab as a medical technologist, but that's actually how I ended up at, at Abbott because my aunt <laughs> is a medical technologist. Uh, she was working for Abbott at the time. And and I you know just kind of as a sidebar story I had I already had another job this was you know that I had gotten you know mid senior year you know for a, you know a very very high profile uh, consumer goods company and I was really looking forward to that but I had to you know have a meeting with that company over my spring break when all my friends were going uh, either to Mexico or skiing I was going to be sitting having a you know a, a round of interviews and meetings uh, to you know solidify my position. Mm-hmm. And so I had mentioned to my aunt that Christmas that, you know, I you know, was worried about my interviewing skills and I wanted to at least get, get a practice round when I came up for spring break. And she said, well, I heard it's pretty hard to get a job with Abbott. So I sent gentleman in the gentleman you know, the, that was in charge, uh, my resume, he gave me an uh, an interview and I was fortunate enough to, to catch on with, with Abbott. So he, he gave me an opportunity, you know, uh, when I, when I took the job, they referred to me because at the time they didn't hire kids. Right out of college, and I was only 21 when I started, and uh, they referred to me as the experiment. And shortly thereafter, <laughs> I was the experiment that went wrong because I was not very good <laughs> at what I was doing, uh, okay. but, you know, the first year. But I was fortunate enough to have you know some good leadership and good managers around me, from a gentleman named Mark Schmitz to another one named Mark Bridgman, you know, guys that really took me under the wing and helped me develop. And you know, 28 years later of working with Abbott, I, you know, I kind of closed it. That, that, that chapter on my life, it was 28 great years and, you know, getting a chance to learn and be with thousands of just very smart, great people in an industry that matters.
0: Can we kind of go through the, those 28 years? I mean, you had a lot of different positions with Abbott and you were all over the world so that, again, with the international part, you know, first you were, you eventually became managing director for Northern Europe. Yeah. Uh, all right, can you tell me how how that happened and then what 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 was this job? What is your what was your uh, what were your job duties in that position?
1: Yeah, so I was I was responsible for uh, all of our business in, in kind of a swath of northern European countries. So uh, all of the UK, Ireland, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, and then eventually Finland, and responsible for our, our core lab diagnostic business and all the commercial operations associated with that from Sales, marketing, service, finance, uh, regulatory and a host of other things that kind of fit under just ensuring that the business kind of, kind of runs. I was just, I was just fortunate enough to, you know, have the opportunity when, when the job came available to, uh, be able to move over and, and, and take that role. I'll tell you, it, it was, it was such a, a great life experience because, uh, it was such a great team of people and just amazing people that I was I was teamed up with in the UK and I absolutely loved the UK customers their intelligence their commitment their talent their way of thinking it was just it was the the culture of, of working together was just an amazing experience and when I took the business over in the UK what was what was interesting is the team had had a ton of success but it was right at the time when a lot of the business that we, we had enjoyed was was upper renewal. And it was also at a time where, you know, in the early 2000s, there was a, a massive expansion of budget for the NHS in the UK, and that that really had slowed to you know, a crawl of, of increase. So, you know, to to, to create growth and, and to continue to win as a team and enjoy the success we've had, we really had to uh, rethink our approach and And we went on a very unprecedented win streak. we outgrew expectations, we outgrew the market, and then we actually established what became the the global reformation of the value proposition you know for 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 abbott in a lot of in a lot of cases, something that we developed there that we called ecosystem, so it's kind of pulling from the concepts of public health and health economics in this this idea of interdependency. And what we, what we started to establish there was kind of the first, you know, foray into understanding that you've got this set of shared clinical services between the lab, uh, and pharmacy and radiology and the lab being kind of, you know, a really big piece of what decisions happen beyond and looking at it kind of as the hub of the wheel and uh, starting to explore and understand, you know, what, how lab behavior, lab activity, lab engagement what it can do for the ER, what it can do for the ICU, what it can do for primary care, and although this is now common kind of thinking today, you know, in, in 2010, this 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 was uh, people were aware of this potential impact, but it wasn't common practice, it wasn't common sense, it wasn't common discussion, and we were the first to really give it dimension, frame, and to a high degree momentum, and so. So when I was in the UK with some very smart people there, both, you know, team members and, and customers, you know, we we started to generate this idea of of, of lab as the, the center point of the eco the healthcare ecosystem, and it started to create momentum for figuring out how the lab could create incremental
0: value. Were there like vast differences in how a lab functioned in Europe versus how it was in the US?
1: No, no, it, it, it really across the globe, you know, I, I think the commonality, and this is an empirical, but the commonality is 95 percent, right? Um, okay. Yeah, in terms of you know the general the general operations and the opportunities, same, you know the opportunities for, for value that could be created, uh, it's highly similar. You know what, what surrounds it, you know, generally is to some degree the level of, of you know how, how policy works. You know, from a healthcare perspective that can impact volumes and how testing gets done and what testing can get done and to what degree consolidation exists uh, also kind of impacts how the, the market is shaped. But in general, you know, the labs share across the globe share much more in common than most people probably realize.
0: Okay. Okay. That's good to know. Now, what about for you personally, though, being in different countries? I mean, I guess being in the UK, that's not you know, at least the language is the same for the most part. But what about like Sweden and I think you said Finland as well? What what was it like being in those countries? I mean, did you can you speak the languages or, or, or you know, yeah. what was that adjustment like?
1: Well, you know, so so the good news is uh, mo- mo- most as with as with a lot of a lot of countries across the globe, most of people can uh, a lot of people can speak English. So you know, I was able to conduct mm, okay. almost, almost all my business in in, in in English. You know, and for sure. Uh, their English is much better than my, 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 my finish, uh, to say the least. Uh, <laughs> okay. so yeah, that, that, that in of itself was, was, was never really, really an issue. Uh, but I tell you, it's just you don't, you know, it's, it's hard to really fully appreciate who you are as a human being until you are able to really immerse yourself into some other cultures. Uh, and it doesn't devalue or even maybe shift your core beliefs. But what it does is it always just gives you this open perspective. Again, back to you know evidence to beliefs to behavior. You get you get in this bridge between evidence and beliefs, and you get an understanding of you know, how how you and somebody from Finland and somebody from Sweden can look at an issue, the exact same issue with the exact same facts, and see it differently simply because of kind of where you were raised, you know what the culture what the culture prioritizes, what the culture shapes within you. And and you know that was just a learning experience to be able to be with so many different cultures, you know, attacking similar problems and watching, you know, the the, the added perspective and perception that that, that the Finns had versus uh, the Danes versus the Irish, right? Uh, and all great cultures, all great people, but you know, very different perspectives on on not only life but you know, in, underneath that curve, also business.
0: Okay. So I, I was going to ask you, like, what did you learn about yourself from the experience of being throughout Europe? But it sounds like that, those, that additional perspective was what it was. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I, I absolutely. You just, you know, you, you, you start to, I don't, I don't want to say deepen, but broaden your perspective about any, any event that, that you see that you, know, you, you don't, you're just not afforded the opportunity to be narrow. And so, what it just enables you to do is is automatically have a have a you know a, a broader set of road guards so to speak for how to look at situations, uh, and interpret them and value them.
0: So let's compare then your your time in Europe. Now then you went on to become divisional vice president for Latin America and Canada. So you know Canada being I guess c- culturally similar to the U.S. But with Latin America was that a similar experience to what you had in Europe?
1: Uh, yeah, it, it, it was. And, and even the Canadians want to, would want to tell you that the, the, the culture is, you know, that not the same, right? So there's always. Right. A, yeah. I, I yeah, should, yeah, should clarify.
0: I don't want to, <laughs> don't want to offend any Canadians. <laughs>
1: you don't, you don't, you don't want any, you don't want any, any angry letters coming in from, from our friends up north. But in fact, it was funny when I was in the UK, most people thought I was Canadian for some reason. I, I don't, I don't know if because I'm, I'm from Texas. So I don't, I'm not even sure how. It couldn't be further from the Canadian border, but there you go. So well, Can- Canadians
0: um, are supposed to be very polite. Well, yeah, maybe, I, I guess maybe that, that was it. Is.
1: Yeah, maybe my, my 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 southern sensibility. My, my mother would be proud. You um, so so you know, when I was in Latin America again, you can't you, you can't. You, it's hard pressed to find a nicer set of people. And again, it, it just it's a, it's this industry you know that, that we're in. But there's just a there was just a ton of talent um now the interesting thing about being in latin america you know kind of like with europe is it is not is not homogenous right you know what you see in colombia is not the culture of brazil is not the culture of argentina it's not the culture of chile right and so you know um, and so you 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 again get this broad perspective of of kind of going you know from from culture to culture and seeing the, these these nuances you know specifically related to the business the company i was with you know, our Latin American team had relationships with customers that was well beyond anything I had ever experienced before or since. I mean, there, that, you know, so I got a good appreciation for there was, was really what it means to you value that, that customer relationship value working side by side to value the outcome, so to speak, of, of what your customers deliver. It's not to say that that didn't exist anywhere else that I had been, but you know, there was just a deep ownership. Uh, personalization, so to speak, of, of that, you know, from our Latin American team, uh, which was awesome. And you know, what I got exposed to from a business perspective, and this this really goes back to a lot of, of kind of, of of what we studied from or talked about with health economics and public health. Mm-hmm. But you really get to see some some interesting challenges there because while I was there, obviously there were a ton of political dynamics that you know occurred, but there were just some fundamental ones that actually guided how. Health systems were shaped, and so you start to see really how policy affects and kind of how health systems form and what they're trying to do and what they're unable to do. Back to these kind of unintended consequences and incentives. So I got some good idea of you know policy to health economics to general economics. I also got really interesting experience you know dealing with you know government corruption and scandal, dealing with you know high inflation and devaluation of currencies, which is kind of its own kind of kind of game. And, you know, even dealing with, you know, a, what is one of the loveliest countries in the world that unfortunately just, you know, has its own kind of political challenges in, in Venezuela, which happened to, you know, have, you know, a, one of the most talented teams in our organization across the globe. And, you know, you know, you just see, you know, what kind of the environmental conditions can do, you know, to a team, to a country, to a healthcare system. So got exposed to a lot there that was quite insightful.
0: Now you're so you're taking these these experiences and this kind of expanded, viewpoint of, of, of from cultures all over the world and now you bring it back to the United States now you're divisional vice president for the United States did you find that you were able to apply the things that you learned in other parts of the world back to your role in the. US
1: Yes because again you know there was a there's a lot more similar to you know the, the issues and challenges that were that were being faced and there was there was differently. You know, when I came back into the US, again you got an amazing team, a bunch of really talented professionals, a lot of amazing customers. And mm-hmm. in actuality what I what I had to learn are the, the tough lessons that, that I had to learn you know, coming back to our US organization, but really more things specifically related to culture. You know, cause for those of you that, that, that know Abbott's history within the U S that that team had been through a lot, specifically kind of navigating itself through a consent decree. And that created a host of, of, you know, kind of internal, you know, dynamics that, that that team, you know, had to face and get itself through. And so what I had to learn there, you know, in terms of you know, coming in almost kind of as an outsider, it you know, was a lot about, you know, how to, how to integrate and shape culture and, and help. The organization unlock a lot of what was just great talent that was there, you know, with some, some wins and some, 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 lear- some lessons learned, you know, along the way for myself. But when I got to the US, I think the thing that I valued most outside of you know, being able to work and learn from some of, of Abbott's people, you know, internally, which were fantastic, was I got, again, the opportunity to be exposed to, you know, some of the best minds kind of in US healthcare, and in U.S. lab medicine and and really enjoyed, again, using this kind of human condition equation, again, kind of looking backward at, at how the evolution of, of lab medicine, you know, has has taken in the U.S. You know, and some of the some of the ideas and ideologies that have popped up um, that have driven success in some of the business processes that you know, maybe are working against it. So it was, a, again, a, a great way to kind of shape perspective.
0: You're listening to the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Jeremy Schubert. We'll be right back. You've heard me talk about LabVine before, and this is an online learning platform for laboratory professionals where you can earn continuing education credit. And these are accredited by the Society of Medical Laboratory Technology of South Africa, as well as PACE in the U.S. and the Royal College of Pathologists in the U.K. I want to tell you about a new feature available on LabVine called the ConfLab. This is an opportunity for laboratory thought leaders, subject matter experts, and consultants to share their expertise with other lab professionals. And you can follow the link in the show notes to apply to be a ConfLab expert. Med has been designing and manufacturing high quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Ahmed by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. And now back to Jeremy Schubert on the People of Pathology podcast. Now, I want to spend the rest of the time then talking about the, it's a tool that you developed called the Lab Relevance Compass. I want to kind of get into this, the history of how you came up with the idea and developed it and how you're applying it. So let's start then. Uh, how did you, how did you come up with this idea?
1: Well, I, I mean, you know, throughout all of the, this 20 years, I've I've literally been in touched or evaluated over a thousand labs, and, you know, particularly in just in the last decade. And as I've already said, I'm a huge believer that the lab can be an important driver for creating new value in healthcare. And, and over a thousand cases that I've looked at, the, the lab could not only contribute more, uh, but it could also be invested in better, right? So, you know, almost every single lab that, I, that I've seen has an opportunity for something, something more, something better, uh, not only for their health system and for their communities, but also for their people. And, you know, since we're talking lab, you know, the standing statement that I've always heard as I've gone across the globe, and, it, and this is a global kind of statement, is that. You know, lab medicine is valuable because 70% of the clinical decisions are influenced by the lab, which yeah. is a, a data point which is really unfounded, right? And then you hear now more modernly that 80% of the medical record is made up of information from the lab, which actually is empirical and data-driven. And so it sounds like we're important because we generate a lot of a lot of information, but you know nothing could be really further from the truth. That can't be the high ground that, that you hold. Because uh, I always have to remind people that 100% of orange juice comes from oranges, but oranges are still a commodity. So because we have an input that's important, it doesn't by default make us make us important. There's a lot of other ways to get at that input. And there's a lot of good reasons that, that people you know, believe this and, and emphasize this. But basically what that creates as we look at that dynamic is that we overemphasize the processing function of converting samples into numbers as our value proposition, and that forces us in to think about just things like the speed and the cost with which it gets done as as you know these main variables that we want to manage, and all those are really extremely important. You know, and I, what I'm going to tell you is an empirical. I really believe that that's less than five percent of the value that the lab could impact. You know, said another way. If you were in charge of a health system and that was the focus, you know, turnaround time, cost per test, you know, quality of results, that was just all we worried about every day as a lab, you know, then the health system's only getting about five percent of the strategic return on investment that their lab could provide. Right. And that's the perspective, but that's you know important kind of kind of lens. And although anyone can disagree with me, the probably safer, better bet is just to agree and try to figure out then okay, where where, where can we go? Now. Why that's the case, why there's so much emphasis on this processing side of it is because all those things actually sound like outputs, uh, but they're not. They're really inputs to a much bigger value equation. When you consider that how the lab can help with identifying and closing care gaps, with identifying and closing clinician deficiencies, population health, including risk stratification, disease burden definition, a host of other things. It's really sad to see the turnaround time, cost per test, and assay specificity are kind of what leads the agenda, right? And so you know, from, from that perspective, you know, that, that puts us in a position where laboratorians may not get the appreciation that they fully deserve. And it, it puts kind of stress, if not long-term risk, on the profession at large. And it's not that, that lab medicine doesn't know this in totality or this is a new concept I mean, you can go back to Dr. Michael Alpasada with diagnostic management teams. You know, and that I don't yeah. know that goes decades back, right? Of being able to say here's some real value that the lab could create that you know wasn't able to be mechanized or mobilized. Or you can look at something like Clinical Lab 2.0, and you know the, that just the whole thesis is about all this incremental value that could be created, right? So it's not you know conceptually this hasn't been touched, broached, or is novel. But we have to ask ourselves, okay, why is it not moved, right? What what's holding us back, right? Mm, okay. because you know that if you think about this, you know this, this it could be that a lot of people kind of view this as it's outside of their locus of control, right? Because the evidence that we see every day is pressure from people to lower our, our cost per test or to improve our turnaround time, you know, because that's what our stakeholders seemingly are interested in, and and that kind of can create blind spots, right? you know, for you in terms of then my head's down, I'm working on these variables because that's what people want. Um, But it's probably because they want those things probably because they don't know what else or better that we could deliver. I would say in almost all all cases, I found that most very talented and well-intentioned labs really didn't have a way to, to diagnose themselves. For sure, they had no way to gather the collective view of their staffs. To have a productive and meaningful conversation about where they really were, you know, much less where they need to go. And in the absence of this, it just it's just do what we've always done, try to do it better, uh, try to do more with less, try to grind it out. And and you see, you know, a ton of labs just doing everything they can to remain relevant through what really is a a, a process that it's on its way to irrelevance. And so, what I wanted to do was to build a way not necessarily the only way, but at least a way for a lab to actually self-diagnose and to actually discuss and debate that diagnosis in a value-creating way, you know, to at least create back to all of the stuff I've learned internationally, you know, to create perspective and to create interest in alternative evidence, uh, if not evidence in and of itself by giving people the opportunity to look at different things to bring new information in to, to debate it, to discuss it, and to then interpret it, you know, you know this kind of new evidence so that it can guide what they believe about what they can do, what they believe about what they should do. You know, the LRC, the LRC, you know, is kind of like a health profile of the lab, and you know, subsequently, it actually provides kind of a discussion guide that you can have between, you know, like you would have with you and your doctor about your health, but it you know creates an opportunity for you to bring in all the, this this new thought and create an actionable strategy for, you know you know from there and so that's kind of you know why i i built it was to open up the the aperture a bit to enable entire labs to take a holistic look at their business and and bring in the, this new information this new evidence this new thinking so that they can have the best perspective possible, the best set of beliefs possible, uh, so they can make the best decisions and create the best hate behaviors that will drive outcomes that they desire for their labs, for their health systems, and for their communities.
0: Now, when you talk about the these sort of discussions within the lab or whatever, is this just like the the management or the you know the the higher ups are supposed to look at these things and evaluate them and discuss them, or is it is there an area for you know, kind of everyone to get involved.
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question. It's actually an essential one. You know, the the way the the LRC is set up is it enables if you have a lab of twenty you know twenty staff members, all twenty to you know provide their input. And all that input, you know, all of each individual's assessment can can be kind of grouped so that you can see kind of how the entire staff views, you know, how the lab is performing, what it's doing. Uh so you, you don't have you don't have you don't have blind spots where as a lab management team you may think something's really important and going really well where the next level and staff may see it completely different you can eliminate all those blind spots by bringing that data together mm-hmm. then the backbone of what it provides is it provides kind of a working guide for how to interpret the information and for ideas on actions you can take but it provides you a working guide for then how to discuss it right as a team right what are the things to focus on how to have the dialogue so that as a leadership team, depending on how far you want to you bring, you know, how many people you want to bring into that discussion, and you could even layer it, you have some kind of, you know, some help to shape those discussions in such a way that you can get down to what's really important for your lab. And you have a way to then communicate back to the entire team, you know, what what what's going to happen and, and gain alignment and action from the whole team so the whole team can move as one.
0: Okay, that makes sense. That seems like that would be probably the most effective way to do it so that's that's good um can we kind of dig in a little bit to the the there's like three main areas that the lab relevance compass focuses on can we kind of further define what these are so the first one then is problems pain points and opportunities and then the second one then is the transformation levers and the third being quick wins or initial actions so can you kind of define what each of those areas are
1: yeah. So problems, pain points and opportunities. So the way to think about that, we call it, I, I refer to those as PPOs, but uh, which is not very creative, but it's just problems, pain points and opportunities. And we can think about these are, these are all the areas where incremental value can be created. You now a, a problem is defined as something that's actually inhibiting our performance in some way, shape or form. A pain point is something we work around or work through, You know, we have to do extra work or make extra effort, but it's not inhibiting our performance necessarily downstream. But you know, it's hard to get over. And opportunity is obviously something new, some new value we can create. That's that's why we kind of categorize those, because each of those has to be thought about in a different way. And why that's the case is because there there could be there could be some pain points that are out there that people don't know that their staff is working around, for example, right? Because it's not affecting performance in any way, even though the staff is having to kind of work their way you know, through it, maybe do extra steps or put extra effort in. What the, the LRC essentially tries to do is identify all of those things uh, that exist across multiple domains of, of looking at the lab, not just operationally, but clinically from a population health perspective, from an HR perspective. It just kind of seeks to pull out all of these these things so that you can get a kind of a, a radar screen, if you will, of the problems, pain points, opportunities that exist. And it's not to say that you would resolve them all. Right. And he would attack all of them, but it enables you to holistically evaluate every opportunity where there is to create value for your institution, for your patients, for your people. And as you look at those, then it gives you the opportunity to prioritize. Then, you know, what again, the hypothesis being that a lot of people struggle, not either because of time uh, or because of a clear methodology to be able to identify all of these things so that they know what to go fix. And with all the smart people that you have in a lab, a lot of the case, it just must be that there's a ton of blind spots that we have, right? Mm -hmm. The second thing then gets into the transformation levers, which is, okay, well, then now that I see I have these problems, payments, opportunities, you know, what can I do? What can I do? And so what the LRC tries to lay out is it provides, you know, ideas like actions, right, that that you can take against common PPOs that exist. Now, it's not. It doesn't, you know, encompass every single possible way. And the diagnostic element of this is going to be directional. But what it does, it doesn't, it's just not a survey with a number. It actually tells you, Hey, given this data, these are four or five things you may want to consider doing that are going to help you, you know, start the, the transformational process of changing your lab, addressing that problem or seizing that opportunity. So the transformational levers just give you, you know, a, a workable direction for things that, that you can do that should make that opportunity come to you and it should resolve the pain point that you're seeing. And then in the quick wins section, it, it, it's about being able to identify, here's here's probably this combination of big opportunity, big outcome, big win for the organization. Yeah, so that you can prioritize something that, that can get you momentum. And I kind of bring transformational and quick wins into this one learning that I actually had when I was in Columbia. I was actually meeting with an integrated payer provider. So this is you know an insurance company who also owned hospitals and labs and you know kind of worked it all as one ecosystem. Okay. And we were talking to them about how do we help, you know, get more value from the lab, all the things that I just discussed. And it was the the kind of the you know, owner of the of the payer, right? Like the CEO of the payer, and they had their lab director with them. And as we were talking, what I was highlighting, and he was like, well, why don't we do this? Why is, I mean, this is too obvious, all these things, why isn't it getting done? And I shared with him, you know, I spoke for the lab director uh, and I said, well, because about 95% of her time is taken up with her just processing, just dealing with the day-to-day running the lab, because this stuff takes it takes time to think, it, it takes energy to discuss and to put together plans. And when, you know, we got 95% of your time is dedicated to processing and just getting through the day, you know, that's tough to do. And he looked at her and he, he said, well, is that true? To which she shook her head, no. Uh, and I, you know, I imagine my heart dropped because I'm like, oh my God, all right. So everything I have just said, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't agree with. and You know, this right. is would, against everything I've seen. And what she said was, it's not true that we're spending 95% of our time processing. She said, we're spending 120% of our time processing because we actually have more work to do than we have capability and capacity to get done and more worries and concerns that we have to manage that we can't stop and think. And I I believe that kind of is probably a scenario that resonates with many people that are are leading labs, particularly those that are being challenged to to deliver in high-performing health systems what the LRC seeks to do is try to simplify and speed and sharpen that process. Even if you're spending 120% of your time processing, this doesn't become something you have to invent. And it's not even something you have to, you know, you have to, you have to think a ton about. You just have to make the time to, you know, to fill out the information and then, and then digest it. Uh, so it, it's, it's there to be a workable solution for people who don't have time for a solution, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it does. The LRC is available on LabVine and I'll yeah. link that in the show notes. So you go on there, you do the initial assessment and I've looked at this, Would you know, it doesn't take that long to do it. And then, so what happens after that? Do you do the assessment? Did you get a, like a report or, you know, what's, what's the next step?
1: Yeah. So the way to think about the LRC is it's, it's, it's not a thing and it's, it's not really an event. You know, so the process as you go on it, you know, because a lot of it could be very easy to interpret as it's this survey that we take. Well, once once you get you know all the people that you want, kind of who have who have taken the survey, you know, you, you get this immediately. But you'll get it as it updates with anybody from your staff who takes it. You'll get you'll get a report, and it's a very lengthy report that kind of you know helps you map all of the answers that you've seen um, that you gave. What the aggregates were what individual answers were so you get a good sense of where there's agreement uh, where there's disagreement and kind of to what degree everybody feels performance is taking place against these multiple dimensions you get a report and within that report it highlights high answers and low answers it also highlights uh a lot of these you know transformation levers or actions that you can take okay so it gives you it gives you that it also comes with a guide for how to interpret the information so the guide provides you background for you know what we're trying to understand in each question domain, why it is the way it is, and what those what those domains are meant to help you help you illuminate. And then, as a part of that guide, it gives you a a backbone for once you have the data, how to get the team to look at it, interpret it, what guidance to give them, and then it also gives you kind of a, a process for how do you how do you have a meeting associated with you know, that data and talk about it openly and get down to you know some alignments and actions that everybody can buy into and move so it's not just hey, here's a pretty survey with some pretty pictures it gives a lot of meat behind uh, what the information means what you can do with it and then it gives you at least some supporting documentation for how to how to start to action it within your lab and the way I kind of look at this is this is this is a kind of a particular a thing so we, we do this. We, we have our conversation, we build our strategy, uh, whether we choose to do that internally or whether we choose to bring maybe you know, some experts in uh, to help us consult on writing a strategy or putting together a project plan, whatever that might work, that you execute at, you stack hands and execute for six months. And then six months, we come back and we, we, re, we redo the LRC and we redo the whole process again. Uh, we'll be able to see, hey, have we made impact? against these domains that we thought were opportunities or problems for us and what new ones have popped up in mind. So every six months it gives us a, a chance to basically take a physical that's beyond just the, the you know the the inspection physical, the cat physical, uh, but actually a holistic physical on the business and realign, reprioritize and redirect our resources, our energy and our attitudes, you know, for the coming six months. And so if you think about it in that way. You know, it moves beyond this concept of a survey or a report to a business process that can be integrated in on an ongoing basis. And once you do it once, now over time, you can keep tracking kind of what you've learned, how the data has changed, and, it, and it'll it'll help you be on the sustainable, continuous improvement path.
0: Okay, okay, that makes a lot of sense. You know, uh, with for the past year plus, there's been a giant spotlight on the lab and. Everybody's talking about lab testing. So it's definitely the right time for a, a tool like that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to mention before we wrap up?
1: No, I think, you know, I come back at what your, your last statement because I think it's an important one. The work that lab medicine has done throughout this pandemic has just been absolutely amazing. And mm-hmm. everybody in the labs to be just commended and praised for the effort. For the attitude, for you know, for the work that they've done to enable the the, the country and the, co- and the globe to manage. I mean that, you know, that it's this really has highlighted the value for the lab. But I also encourage people at the same time to not to look at this as a door to something bigger, not as a you know, not as a permanent shift in perspective for the lab. You know, a year from now, even maybe quicker, sooner than that. You know, There's still going we're gonna return back to the same pressures we had pre-pandemic as it relates to healthcare, the cost of healthcare, the delivery of healthcare, the challenges with it. And as we've built and earned the respect uh, and the attention, you know, now is the best time to actually plan for how do we how do we build and create even more momentum of value creation downstream. Now is that moment. We we haven't we haven't got to a destination with with COVID and the great work everybody's done through it has opened the door and now it's time to go through
0: it. Yep, yep, exactly, totally agree, totally agree. Well, Jeremy, this has been great. It's been uh, interesting to kind of look back at your career and to talk about the LRC. So uh, thank you very much for being here.
1: Yeah, thank you for your time, I appreciate the
0: opportunity. Big thanks to Jeremy Schubert. I've got a trailer for you right now of my interview with Dr. Rifat Manan and Dr. Emilio Madrigal, the creators of PathCast. So what can we expect from PathCast in the future? What, what, are the, uh, what are the plans going forward?
2: Continue broadcasting lectures and just continue to expand the number of lectures that are available for each subspecialty. And if there's a subspecialty we haven't reached, you know, we're, we're coming for that subspecialty. We're, you know, we definitely want to uh, have more clinical pathology lectures. Done. Ripon okay. and I are both anatomic and clinical pathologists. We're both before certified in AP and CP. And, you know, I think that uh, at least you know, our program, um, I think a lot of programs do, they, they tend to be very heavy on AP. And so sometimes, uh, you know, we forget a little bit about some of the CP lectures that we should be posting. But yeah, definitely we want to start posting more CP. As a matter of fact, I know we have um, some exciting microbiology lectures lined up um, oh. and potentially some exciting coagulopathy lectures lined up as well. Yeah, yeah the another thing, like, you know, uh, we want to do probably that uh, we can kind of help through PATCAS bring pathology more out of the lab and face the public, you know? And I mean, we know that like pathologists play a big role in patient care much more than it is actually perceived. And this has been one of our efforts to project a bigger role for pathologies. And, you know, the the current pandemic is one example, actually. And we know that the pathologists are at the front line of the battle against the coronavirus. We talk about disease testing all the time, right?
0: You can hear more from Dr. Manan and Dr. Madrigal in episode 11. So I think the most important takeaway for me from this episode was that in all of Jeremy's travels and working in different countries around the world, what he found was that the experience of laboratory professionals was largely the same, regardless of what country they were in. And I think that's important because as we know, pathology and public health is a global concern. And as Jeremy said, you know, laboratory quality is largely concerned with turnaround time, and it might be time to change that way of thinking and look at other areas as well. As always, there will be links in the show notes to everything we talked about today, including a link to LabVine, where you can sign up for the Lab Relevance Compass. If you'd like to connect with the show and connect with me, you can go to peopleofpathology.com. You can find links to Twitter and LinkedIn, and you can listen to all the episodes there as well. I also want to tell you about a special YouTube event that I'm doing on June 26th. I'm teaming up with Dr. Alexandra Zuroff of the Digital Pathology Podcast, who you may remember was on this show a few months ago, We're going to have a discussion on youtube about the pathology podcast and some other things as well so check out the link in the show notes for that thank you to everyone for sharing the podcast with others that you know please continue sharing it and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals this show is a member of health podcast network which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health care and well-being and you can find a link in the show notes to health podcast network If you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts, thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next time on the people of pathology podcast.